Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I am back with my guys from Guy Talk. I am Bill Arnold, and I am glad to welcome Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish as my power panel for Guy Talk. And if you missed the last hour, we had some great questions and even more great questions have come in on the text line. We're going to try to get to as many of them as we can. If you don't hear your question, I deeply apologize. There are no bad questions that have come in today. I want to start, gentlemen, by the way, welcome back. Thank you, Bill. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you. Have you really married 200 people, by the way, Pastor Tom? More than 200, probably somewhere around 205, 206, something like that. And I've done close to 240 funerals in my years of ministry. So your stats are a little bit behind there. You, you need to get a few more marriages in there, right? So I can have a few more yeah, funerals. Yeah, so you can have a positive... Uh... <laughs> well, summer's coming, Jeff. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, here's a comment question. I heard many hellfire and brimstone messages as a child. I spent many nights as a child alone and in fear that Jesus would return and I would be left behind. Now I'm old and sometimes the fear returns and I'm afraid that I didn't say my prayers just right and God will reject me. Who are the people that will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. I only believe in Jesus. Wow, then you're, you are set. Um, this question actually comes up a lot, Tom, I, you probably hear this question often too, this passage about depart from me, and, and Christians are afraid that somehow Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. This whole passage starts, if you go back up to verse 15, this passage of scripture spoken by Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. Jesus is speaking about the wolves, by their fruit you will recognize them, they are teaching a false gospel uh, a false way of salvation. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. These are the ones that Jesus is going to say, depart from me, You never, I never knew you. It, if you are a born-again Christian, if you believe in Jesus, the, the caller said that he just trusts in Jesus. Well, Romans declares that whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. So if you have a saving faith, you, faith, you will never hear the words from Jesus, depart from me. I've worked with a lot of people that have had uh, voices at night come into their head or in their dreams accusing them. And some of it's simply people, some of it is demonic, and I've had to deal with both. For this gentleman, for the listener right now who wrote that in, if you can say at night, all you have to say in your prayers is, Jesus, you are my Lord, you got the whole thing. There is nothing mm-hmm. else needed because you're looking in the right place. Don't worry about Do you say it right? Do you say it often enough or whatever? It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And when your confidence is in him, you're okay. There's nothing else to worry about. But the devil always wants to say, really? Do you really believe, Bill? Do you really have enough faith, Jeff? Do you really? No, that's a lie. Focus is Jesus, period. That childlike faith that Jesus talked about. Okay, here's a great follow-up question. The Bible states that in the end times... 
there will be a great falling away. Over the last few years, we've seen pastors who have preached the word for many, many years, and they have denounced their belief in God, and they've walked away from it all. How then can our salvation be secure? You have to be in something before you can fall away from it. It also states that those who endure to the end will be saved. So we can talk doctrinally about the doctrine of assurance of salvation, that once you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit, he will be with you forever, um, and you will be saved forever for all of eternity. Eternal life begins the moment you are saved and lasts, wait for it, for all of eternity. All right. Now, any individual instance of someone who says they're saved and then falls away, we, we don't know their heart. We can't see if they were truly saved or not. So the two possibilities, obviously, are they're still saved, and uh, and I like to describe it as they're having a temper tantrum before God, kind of like a child who says, oh, I wish, I hate you, Dad. I wish I was never born. I'm going to run away from home. And, and Christians can have temper tantrums against their Heavenly Father, trust me. Or they were never saved to begin with. But but I can't tell you for any particular instance or any particular pastor that this has happened to or or your your brother-in-law who's walked away from the faith or whatever— I can't tell you which one of those they are because I can't see their heart. When I run into pastors that I've gotten into really bad theology, my first goal with them is to not only listen to them, but talk to them about, you know, what is Jesus saying to you? What are you getting from his word? Where are you getting this from? When did Jesus send you the memo that you could change the word of God to be more aligned with the culture? And for the listeners here, I know the devil wants you to believe with all your heart that you just haven't believed enough. You really don't have it. And when that day comes, you know, hellfire is going to get you. No, 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 no. The focus of our faith is Jesus and Jesus alone and what he's done. It's not on how much I believe in it, how much I, I do it. It's in him. I don't know about these other pastors or these other leaders and the great falling away. I don't know anything about those people's heart. I know this. I want my heart to be right with Jesus no matter what happens And if your heart is right with Jesus, you have nothing to be concerned about. All right. We need some clarification uh, on the last comment about the fire and brimstone. I think it's regarding you, Tom Parrish. Um, The Bible says that, uh, that the people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and say, we drove out demons in your name. So I don't know that you can uh, just say that if you say Jesus is Lord, that's it. Because that's what these people did. There's a difference between saying Jesus is Lord and living that Jesus is Lord. Well, if they were performing miracles and casting out demons, they might have appeared as if they were living. I don't. The passage Jesus. doesn't say, by the way, that they, they proclaim cast. Jesus is Lord or Jesus is my Lord. They were just like, who's that sorcerer that wanted the power to cast out demons and wanted to buy it? And, and oh, Peter yes, says, yes. Uh, you know, may your money perish with right. you. They were trying to manipulate spiritual forces. There's no place that says these false prophets proclaimed Jesus is their Lord mm-hmm. anywhere. So yeah, I believe they were unsaved, and that's why Jesus says, depart from me. Yeah, and in, in that passage, isn't Lord, Lord, like saying, like, sir, sir? Yes. Yeah. Right. You can go all over the world, and you have shamans, and you have others out there that appear to be casting out demons and doing stuff, you know, from their religion or from their point of view. Um, Couldn't they really be doing it as well? 
It, they might. I mean, in, I, a, I in a demonic sense, but you in, have... But in the demonic sense, the devil always wants to fool us. So it looks like they're gone. He just comes in with another group of demons in a different way that we don't think about. But I know this, that those that are really firm in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we talk about faith in Jesus, it goes from your head and it's got to get to your heart. And when it gets to your heart, he becomes the passion of your life. And I ask Christians this all the time. How much is Jesus the passion of your life? Do you make your decisions based upon your relationship with him? Do you do you forgive your spouse and others when they hurt you based upon your relationship with Jesus? When we take an offering on Sunday morning, and I always love it, it, you know, at least in Lutheran church, they bring the offering forward, give it to the pastor. We usually sing a little song. I don't do that anymore. When I receive that offering, I hold it up and I and I say to the congregation, This we're saying thank you to Jesus in these gifts. Not to pay for the boiler, not to pay for the building, not to pay a salary. Mm. It is our way of saying thank you for all he's done for us. And honestly, and it, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit. Since we've begun doing that, the offerings have gone up dramatically. So I encourage you to do that in your church. Mm-hmm. Why did Lucifer decide that he would challenge his own creator for power? I guess even the angels have free will to choose then. Well, that's part of the problem. I I was looking at passages talking about Satan and his fall and uh, falling from the grace of God. I, you know, here's the struggle. Uh, in what we call free will, and there's a lot of different interpretations of what that means, Satan himself uh, has the, the power to either obey or disobey. Well, now he's the permanent liar, says the Bible. That's his nature. He chose not to serve the Lord, and so he fell away. But here's the struggle. And people ask, well, golly, what does that really mean? The Lord God who created us wants us to love him as he loves us. Here's what I've learned about love. You cannot love unless you have a choice to either love or not love. The freedom of that will. Satan chose not to love. And he has fallen away and he's not coming back. Our goal is to keep falling in love with Jesus over and over. You know, Satan... In Isaiah 14, there's a kind of a picture of Satan, and most theologians believe this is actually Satan Satan talking. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth. You will say, and this is now Satan saying in his heart, this is the five I will statements that are attributed to Satan. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. That's the rebellion that was birthed in Satan's heart. He wanted to be like God. He should have known right. that God is omniscient and omnipotent and that this rebellion would get nowhere. He should have known that. And so the question is kind of, well, then why did he rebel? If he, if he was this majestic being that understood who God was, he should have known that his rebellion wouldn't get anywhere. And yet he did it. And I, I don't have an answer. The only answer I can come up with for this is pride. Arrogance and pride are killers. They always have been. They always will be. And that's the problem in our life. You know, when Adam and Eve ate the apple at the insistence of the serpent, you know, they were basically wanting to be God, knowing the difference between right and wrong yep. and having that power. And we have that bad habit today. How many of us today want to be in control of our own life and want to make all the decisions? 
the reality is for the Christian, yeah, we still have to make decisions every day and do things, but we understand our decision-making is based upon the will of Jesus, not upon my personal will. All right, we'll be back with more Guide Talk. Let me know if you've got a question. Send it over, 877-933-2484. hope I didn't say that too fast. 877-933-2484. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, guys, when you listen to this music, what's going on in the movie right now? <laughs> it's, it's wonderful, but I don't know what it is. Okay, good, good. All right, I want to follow up with an addendum to the question about, you know, the Bible states that in end times there will be a great falling away, and there's been, over the years, pastors who have preached the word for many years and have denounced their belief. The question, the addendum is, so therefore, can't we choose to change our belief? Okay, I became born again, I got saved, and then you grow 20 years later and go, yeah, I'm going to change my belief. You know, this this question, and there are theologians who debate the issue of assurance of salvation, that you're, you're assured, some say, you're assured as long as you continue in your faith. But if you ever stop believing or stop your faith, then somehow you're unsaved. The problem is with that view is that there's so many passages that declare that the moment you are saved, you're saved for all of eternity. Having begun in you a good work, he will complete it. Your salvation is kept in heaven for you, shielded by God's power. Um, Once you have the Holy Spirit, he'll be with you forever. Um, There's so many passages that declare once you're saved, you're saved for all of eternity. So, um, look— this gets to the let me let me rephrase this a little bit because it's it's if I said it this way, I think most would say no that's not right. If I said your salvation, your eternal salvation is is up to you, right? Now and and keeping yourself saved was up to you somehow. Well, I got news for you. If it was up to me, I'd lose my salvation every single day. Two or three times. Yeah, two or three <laughs> times. So I I am thankful that Scripture declares that once you're saved, God keeps you. He holds you in his hand, and he's never going to let you go. I I think we get into almost the wrong arguments here, and I'm not saying anything negative about a question. This is mm-hmm. a good question. The problem is we keep focusing back on us when we should be focusing on the Lord. If you focus on the Lord, you're not going to, quote, fall away. You're not going to, you know, even if you have your ups and downs, you know, it's kind of like when you love Jesus, your ups and downs are like a roller coaster. You know, you may begin on the level ground and go through the day up and down, but at the end of the day, you're going to come back to the level ground mm-hmm. at the end of your you know, week or whatever it may be. The focus is him, and that's the biggest problem I have with people is getting them to focus not on how good they are, if they're faithful enough, if they're following through but on Jesus. When you focus on Jesus, guess what? He works through you to do good works you never planned to do in the first place. Doctrine is so important. What God has promised and how we understand it is so important. So our understanding of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, beyond being saved, 
How are we saved? By faith alone. The next most important doctrine I think about soteriology is once you're saved, do you have true assurance of salvation? And if it was up to you to keep it somehow, no one could have any assurance of salvation. So I remember the first John five passage, right? I write, and we we've we've mentioned this passage a lot on this show. I write these things to you who believe that you may no. know that you have eternal life. It was if it, if your salvation, if keeping yourself saved was up to you, no one could say, I know that I have eternal life. Right. Good All right. Word. All right. Let's um okay, I just <laughs> I just closed the text line. That was a good move, Bill. Closed it as in... I accidentally closed it. Now I have to reopen it. It's just loading back in. Gotcha. Um, all right. Shows us how human we all are. Yeah. <laughs> all right. It, it gets down to James chapter 5 at the end. And wondering what covers a multitude, cover over a multitude of sins. What does it mean at the end of James 5 to cover over a multitude of sins. <clears throat> oh, James 19, 5, 19, and 20. Yes. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The The multitude of sins, it doesn't matter when you think about it. It's not the, the uh, I think what James is saying, it's not the amount of sins. <coughs> it's who's covering them. And it is Jesus who covers them. So there is no amount of sin that you and I commit that Jesus' blood cannot cover. You know, the one thing I learned about dealing with the demonic, and I just want to throw this in for a minute, and I, I've worked with a lot of exorcists along the way, and I've studied. Um, some try to get the demon's name. The, I've learned two things. There are only two things I really focus on when I'm dealing with the demonic. You know, forcing the name of Jesus into the conversation and the blood of Jesus to cover us from everything. Hmm. The demons can't deal with that. Neither can sin. When Jesus covers us, we are covered completely, and there's nothing there to be concerned about. And if you look at the first part of this, it says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death. Well, that's salvation. And at the moment of salvation, just as you say, the blood of Christ will purify you of all unrighteousness. You will receive forgiveness of sins. And and that's probably what James is referring to is the complete forgiveness uh, that you receive the moment you believe and move from being a sinner to being a saint in God's eyes. Mm, nicely done. All right, gentlemen, uh, we're sort of getting down to uh, the last few minutes. And, you know, as we talk about God's Word and how we apply it to our lives, and sometimes there's going to be people that are going to hear things for the first time that they just don't understand because we're going to be using spiritual terms that, Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. Um, And I also want to just take very seriously the people who have come to the show today with a heavy heart, with um, maybe some really hard news they got today. Maybe something that is not going the direction they have prayed for, and they're they're grasping right, as we all do from time to time. So I'd love to um, spend a little bit of time praying for the hearts and minds of people who have heard God's word on this show today, and maybe struggling with what we said. Might hmm. be saying, "I don't think those guys have it right." They sound smart, but I'm not sure it's exactly the way I understand it. So we've stirred hearts, we've stirred minds, and not to mention there's going to be people listening 
today who are in need of prayer and comfort and support. Let's pray. Good word. Yeah. So how about I go first? All right. Heavenly Father, uh, listeners today, you know who they are, and they may be suffering from a broken heart. So I ask you to fill them with your peace and your joy, and that's the only peace that can comfort. And I ask that they will walk closely with you as they're going through this period of difficulty or disappointment. And I know that whatever healing that they need or whatever recovery that they're looking for is possible through your power alone. I pray that in Jesus' name. Hmm. Lord, you say that whoever is weary and burdened to come to you and you will give them rest. I just pray for those who are burdened right now. Show them, Lord, that you are their shield, their strength, their ever-present help in times of need. You are always there and you will comfort them give them strength, and give them your peace that surpasses all understanding in Christ Jesus. And Lord Jesus, you know the hearts of everyone who's listening. You know the burdens that they're carrying. You said that you would take our burdens on yourself. Give the assurance to the listeners that you're carrying that burden, that you're not abandoning them, that you're right there right now, and that all they need to do is stretch out their hand and call on your name. It doesn't mean all the anguish in that will be relinquished. I know I've been through this, but Lord, what I do know is that ultimately it is your joy that comes through your presence and your reality. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. All right. We've got about a minute left. I'm going to tackle one more question. Uh, what does ye workers of iniquity mean? I think that's in Matthew 7. I, I think that's in Matthew 7. Maybe not. Uh Ye? Ye who work iniquity, or literally, you know, whoever breaks the law, ye workers of iniquity. Do you know what that, that means, or did I stump you at the end of a 90-minute session? Well, I think it's just workers of, of uh, things contrary to God, uh, the sinful, the uh, contrary to righteousness. It's uh, um, those who don't know God. So God describes unbelievers in many, many ways. He describes believers in many ways, by the way. Right. But I think workers of iniquity are just simply the lost well, and there's a difference between people that do iniquity or do sin, you know, stumble into it, and people that work to create iniquity. And workers of iniquity are intentional, and the Bible would call them wicked, because wickedness right. tries to manipulate and control other people and hurt them for your own benefit. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, thank you for a lovely hour and a half of Guy Talk. I know I've, I really like this extended time. I'm going to give you some pizza coupons. They have a zero cash value, <laughs> but it makes me look generous, doesn't it? We love it that does. about you, yeah. Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> you're What's so welcome. For dinner? Well, you're so welcome. All right, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, Eric Hernandez is going to join the program. He is an apologist and an evangelist, and boy, does he love Jesus. You're going to be in for a delight. We will take a short break and be right back. Thanks again to... My power panel today, Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. If you've missed any of Guy Talk today, there are some great questions answered. Check it out at myfaithradio.com. It's the afternoon. 
Good Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. I'm so glad to meet for the first time Eric. Hernandez, he's my guest. He is a minister and a certified formation therapist. I have no idea what that means. And the apologetics lead and millennial specialist. So he likes talking to kids for the Baptist General Convention of Texas. So I bet That's he knows. I bet he knows Leighton Flowers. Hey, Eric. How's it going? Good. And you work? Do you work with uh, Leighton? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I knew that. I, I, I assumed. Well, welcome to the show. It's so nice to meet you. Hey, thank you. Likewise, great to be here. Yeah, I watched uh, one of your YouTube videos, and you're amazing. So I'm glad to have you on the no, show. Thank you. Yeah, and we had uh, just had 90 minutes of uh, a, a segment of the show where anyone can ask questions, and we try to answer them. And we have a lot of questions about. You know, people wanted to know how do I talk to people about Jesus, and how do I bring it up, yeah. and, and how do I make it, you know, appealing. And I just thought, what a great follow up because we're going to talk about apologetics and evangelism. And maybe you can start by um, telling us just a little bit about yourself because I'm meeting you for the first time and I want to know more. Oh uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Eric Hernandez. Um, like I said, the apologetics lead for Texas Baptist. And uh, I, I suppose jumping into how I even got into apologetics would be relevant here. Um, <clears throat> to try and try and be brief, freshman year of college, I took my first philosophy class, enjoyed it. Later, found out my professor was an atheist, and wanted to take another class in philosophy. And everyone warned me not to take one professor in particular because he would try to make me lose my faith. But this intrigued me, and I took his class intentionally. And the pivotal moment in my life and ministry was when he walks into class and he pretends to hold up this antidepressant pill. And he basically says uh, something like, religion wants us to believe in a soul, and according to Christianity, your thoughts and emotions and beliefs are supposed to be in this soul, and these are all supposed to be immaterial things. But the problem is, is that if I took this antidepressant pill, it has a power to affect the alleged immaterial states of my soul. But how can that be? How can something tiny and physical affect the immaterial? And essentially, um, he said, well, because every time we look, uh, scientists look at the body, they just see, you know, the chemicals and elements. And every time a scientist looks at the brain, they only see neurons firing. They've never seen anything like a soul. And how do we explain that? And he said, the answer is simple. Uh, the answer is there is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no soul. There is no afterlife. You're just a physical brain and body. And we need to learn to live with this fact and get on with our lives and stop believing in these foolish fairy tales. Um, and, and what troubled me was um, for the first time in my life, I had heard an argument that if true, would prove Christianity false. How so? Uh, briefly, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, to summarize Paul, he essentially says if there is no resurrection, Christianity can't be true. And he even goes as far as to say that people should feel sorry for us for how gullible we are for believing this stuff. And suffice it to say that um, the resurrection included not just a, a bodily, physical resurrection, but me, myself, uh, 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 something that is not identical to a body, uh, a soul that is going to be resurrected with a body. But just as if there is no resurrection, Christianity could be false. Well, if there's no soul, if there's no me more than a body, how could there be a resurrection of me or anything for that matter? And by the same line of uh, thought. Uh, Christianity would be false. So suffice to say that um, 
This was one of those things where I could either ignore or roll up my sleeves and get into some more philosophy and learn about this stuff. And suffice it to say, that's what I did. Oh, that's outstanding. I love that he tried to uh, prove that there is no God. Uh, that's interesting. All right, let's talk about apologetics some more. And you know, maybe you could just say exactly what it is, because for people who are listening yeah. uh, to the show and maybe... They're, they're not around a lot of uh, Christian terminology. Apologetics seems like mm-hmm. you got to apologize to somebody. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so no, it's, what uh, is it? Yeah, it's making the atheist apologize for being an atheist. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's, it's not I like that, that either. Uh, yeah. No, uh, apologetics uh, is essentially uh, the go-to passage is 1 Peter 3.15. And it says, always be ready to give an answer or some translations say defense for anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. And that word defense or answer, if you look it up in the Greek, it's the word apologia in Greek. And that's where we transliterate the word apologetics. And hence, we could say that biblically speaking, apologetics is the biblical mandate to be ready to give an answer, a, a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. So we are commanded by God to be ready to uh, give an articulation of not just what we believe, but why it is we believe it. And this is a mandate given to all believers. And to cut to the chase and put it bluntly, I I like to put it this way. If you're a Christian and you're listening and you're not engaging in the discipline and task of apologetics, then you are in biblical rebellion and disobedience to the word of God (laughs) because there is no age limit or gap. And, you know, it's not be ready to give an answer as long as you're in the youth group or, you know, be ready to give an answer you know, just for lock-ins or something like that. This is a commandment to all believers that we should be ready to give an answer for, again, what we believe and why we believe it. Mm-hmm. So uh, separate and explain the difference between apologetics and how it relates to evangelism. Yeah. So great question. I, I would say I, today, I would say it's very hard, if not almost impossible, to do evangelism with apologetics, um, without apologetics, rather. Uh, I heard someone once say that if someone tells you they don't need apologetics, they have just revealed to you how little evangelism they actually do. Mm. And here's <laughs> here's the the biblical connection. If uh, in Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse four and five, Paul says um, talks about spiritual warfare, and he says that the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but the purpose of this aspect of spiritual warfare is to demolish and tear down what he calls strongholds. Well, the next question is, what's a stronghold? Well, he defines it for us in verse 5, and essentially he defines strongholds as any thought, ideology, philosophy, or belief that goes against the knowledge of God. So we could say that biblically speaking, strongholds would be things like any belief or set of beliefs that will hinder or keep someone from coming to the saving knowledge of God. And according to this passage, we are commanded to not just identify them, but destroy and demolish them. And as I always like to clarify, we're, we're called to destroy ideas, not people, uh, because there are false ideas and false ideas have consequences. And so in our culture, there are at least three dominant strongholds that any non-believer you approach will be will hold to one or more of these three dominant strongholds. And before you can even get to the gospel, there are these barriers you have to, again, according to scripture, demolish. You know, almost like the walls of Jericho. Before you can get in, you have to first bring down these walls. And this is how apologetics specifically, among many ways, is going to relate to how we evangelize in our culture today. Okay. Eric Hernandez is my guest. And Eric, Let's talk. That's very interesting. You talked about the strongholds of our culture. 
And you you named well, you mentioned three, but I want to know what they are. What are the three dominant strongholds of our culture? Absolutely. Uh, to go through them briefly, the first one is known as postmodernism or relativism, and it is essentially the idea that there is no objective truth. There is no absolute right or wrong. Uh, the truth does not exist. So. Suppose I'm standing behind a tree, and from my perspective, I say that there is a dog to the right of the tree. But suppose you're standing on the opposite end, and you say, no, 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 there's a dog to the left of the tree. Well, who's right and who's wrong? Well, we're both right. And in the same way, says the postmodernist uh, of this worldview with the Bible called Stronghold, in the same way, there is no objective right or wrong. It just depends who you're asking. And so if you're against, you know, same-sex marriage, that's fine, but don't tell someone else they can't marry who they love because that is, quote, your truth and not theirs. Um, if you're against abortion, that that's fine too, but don't tell this young lady she can't have one because it's her body and her choice. And again, that's that may be true for you, but not for her. And of course, God forbid that we impose our quote-unquote, religious morality onto someone else. So this stronghold revolves around the sentiment that we kind of create our own reality. There is no objective truth, and so it doesn't matter what God you worship or what religion you adhere to. At the end of the day, just, quote-unquote, be a good person because there is no objective truth. Um, the the second stronghold is um, known as scientism, and note the ism. It is essentially the view that science is the only way to gain knowledge about anything about reality. And so the person who holds to what's called scientism, and again, it's it's far more than an appreciation of science. It, it is using science as the only way to know anything. And so a person who holds to this stronghold may say, um, if you want me to believe in God, you have to show me the scientific evidence. Um, show me a scientist that has gone to heaven with lab equipment and you know conducted empirical investigations and come back and given us the results because if you can't do that then we can't know it because if you can't know something scientifically what's well, either not true or maybe it just can't be known and the final one is naturalism which is what actually i alluded to in the beginning of my story where everything that exists is going to be something physical and you recall my uh, atheist professor who said well there can't be a soul because the body every time we look at it we just see something physical. And if pills like antidepressant pills can change our mind, well, then perhaps our mind is nothing more than just the brain, and there's nothing immaterial like a soul about us. Mm, so interesting. All right, Eric Hernandez, uh, no objective truth, scientism, scientism, and naturalism. Those are the three. Yes. All right. So That's right. Okay. How, how, can, how can we identify these? I mean, how do we... How do we look for them? How do we identify these in our culture? Yeah, well, very good. Kind of, you know, kind of in some of the things that I, I mentioned, you know, you usually hear, let's say you're evangelizing to someone and they, you know, they kind of cut you off and they say, well, look, I, I'm glad Christianity works for you, but, you know, it just doesn't work for me. Now, note that they're not saying you're wrong or that Christianity is false, but you also have to understand why they're why they're not saying you're wrong. Why are they not saying you're wrong? Well, because if postmodernism is is true, and I use that word loosely, well, there is no objective wrong because that would assume there's an objective right. So someone who holds to a postmodern mentality, this relativistic mentality, you'll find that they're not going to say you're wrong because they don't believe there is a wrong because that would imply an objective right. And on top of that, notions like tolerance become redefined. Um Classically, tolerance historically means I disagree with you, but I still respect you. 
today, tolerance is defined as the very act of disagreement itself is intolerant. Um, and so you can immediately spot these in our culture. I'm sure the listeners can already think of hundreds of examples they see every day in commercials and movies and TVs. Um, you know, well, my truth is, quote unquote, this, that or the other. And I feel like I'm in a different body than what I see. And I don't have to live by reality because it's not true for me and I can create my own reality. Um, when it comes to scientism, you know, it, I, I saw a meme once that said scientists have recently discovered that people will believe anything as long as you say that scientists have recently discovered it. <laughs> and and what you see is is you see this connection. And for the sake of time, we can connect the 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 last two: scientism and naturalism. Everything is physical, and everything we can learn about is going to be through science. So, <clears throat> you know that. Imagine, if you will, you're watching a documentary on the um, on the History Channel or something, and they interview this Christian. And of course, it's the worst guy to represent Christianity. Um, but then at the end of the interview, he gives a really brief uh, explanation of how one can be saved, and it, and it's it's decent, you know, it's biblical. And you think, well, at least at least he got that part right. But then the camera fades, and then they interview a different religious leader. Let's say a Buddhist, and then a Muslim, and then a Mormon. And you're kind of like, okay, this is this is a little weird. And after they interview about 10 religious leaders, they interview three scientists, um, each of them who are experts in their field. And let's say the topic is about the afterlife. And one scientist says, well, you know, we know there's no afterlife because people who claim to go to heaven or leave their body, well, we know that's just all in the brain. And this happens whenever – there's uh, oxygen deprivation in the brain. Even prayer can be explained by just neurons firing in the brain. It's really – you're not really talking to God. It's just a therapeutic uh, placebo effect. And the other scientist says, right, and, and when you go under surgery, the certain drugs they use can make you hallucinate. And then another scientist, the third one, says, right, and by the way, this whole belief in an afterlife is really just a byproduct of our evolutionary natural selection process – and people who believe in something bigger than them, it helps them live better, and it's healthier for them mentally. But at the end of the day, we know it's not real. It's just the way we've evolved to adapt uh, and cope with our fear of death. And so you note how everything becomes reducible to something physical, and everything is attempted to be explained away through science. And if as Christians we don't know how to recognize these much less respond to them, we're not going to be very effective in evangelism, and we are not going to be able to reach a culture that is permeated and saturated with these kind of strongholds. Ah, well said, Eric Hernandez. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking to Eric about apologetics and evangelism and how to be effective communicators of the gospel with the people that we are in front of every day. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Hernandez is my guest. He's a minister. He's a therapist and apologetics lead and millennial specialist for the Baptist General Convention of Texas. 
And we're talking uh, about apologetics, evangelism, and he was uh, just discussing strongholds in our culture and fascinating. And now the question that makes me nervous to ask, Eric, is have these strongholds infiltrated the church? Absolutely, every oh, single one of them. I was hoping that wasn't, and we be your haven't answer. realized it. <laughs> All uh, right, and we haven't realized it. So, uh, shameless quick plug. Uh, hopefully, in June, my first book will be coming out Sweet. on how to engage with nonbelievers, and it'll be called "The Lazy Approach to Evangelism." Uh, and you'll see why when we get into responses. But one of the things I, I to point out is, you know, if, if the church doesn't know how to identify these, not only will we not be able to respond to them, we will not check them when they come into our, our sanctuaries. Um, and to give a, f- a few brief examples, remember postmodernism is the idea that you know I kind of determine what's true, um, and and truth and reality kind of revolves around my feelings, my experiences. Uh, look at just l- consider how we've evangelized in the past fifty plus years. Um, <clears throat> if if you know a lot of times what I see is you know when someone shares uh, wants to have an evangelistic conversation, they often start with their personal testimony. And while there's lots to go into there, I'll just say this: what that what that seems to do, especially to a postmodern culture, is that seems to imply that the gospel revolves around look at how good God made my life. Mm-hmm. But note that we cannot guarantee that to anyone. I mean, just look at the church in China, uh, look at these persecuted churches. But to an outsider, when we do that, it it pitches a gospel as if the purpose of the gospel is to make your life better, so to speak. And then now consider uh, these celebrity deconversions or deconstructions that we see. You know, one of the first things people say when they leave the faith, and if there are celebrities with voices, they say, I'm no longer a Christian and I'm so much happier. And my thought is always, what does that matter? And why would they think that? Well, because that's the way we've pitched it to them. And so in their mind, if you become a Christian to make your life, quote unquote, better and to be happy, but the moment you start reading the Bible and see that these doctrines impede on your happiness, well, then it only makes sense to find a different worldview. Um, after all, that's why I came to it in the first place. That's how it was pitched to me. Um, regarding scientism, um, you, we often, um, you know, let's say you have a, a young person trying to witness to a non-believer, and the non-believer says, "Well, I, I don't have faith. I have science, and I don't need faith." Mm-hmm. And the non-believer says, "Well, no." Or the believer says, "Well, it's all about faith." They're both wrong on many fronts. But here's the point. Under the pressure of this scientism, it's almost first the church forced the church to have this knee-jerk reaction to where every spiritual thing, uh, every physical thing, has to be spiritualized, or the opposite extreme where every every uh, spiritual thing can be naturalized, where we begin to say, okay, well, were these really miracles, or you know, was Jesus really doing this out of the other? You know, there there may be some instances where God used natural things or natural means to bring about a miraculous event, but the pressure becomes either we we throw science out and everything is just quote unquote faith, which isn't the way the Bible uses it. Or we now try to explain everything and all these miracles in the Bible by somehow making it naturalized that God actually used natural means. And both are just unbiblical and inappropriate. And and for naturalism, here's the way I like to show this when I go to churches. <clears throat> um, I, I, I like to ask the audience a few questions. And, and Essentially, it's this. I, I ask the audience, can you please point to what part of your body thinks? And most people point to their head. And I ask, is it your brain? Does your brain think? And they say yes. And then I ask, do you need a brain to think? And they say yes. And then I ask, does God have a brain? And they get really quiet. 
And after looking at the church bulletin board to make sure I'm not at a Mormon church, um, I asked, I, I say, no, God does not have a brain. Uh, Mormons believe God has a brain, but we don't because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But clearly God thinks, according to Psalms, his thoughts towards us are more than the grains of sand. And then I ask, well, are you made in his image? And of course, the answer is yes. And then there's a lot of confusion. And essentially, it's it's this idea that really there shouldn't be confusion to begin with, because throughout the history of the church, there has always been this idea and doctrine of an immaterial soul with a mind that is also immaterial. And it is your mind that thinks, not your brain. Um, but but why do we why do does every church I go to, everybody's always pointing to their head to say their brain thinks? Suffice it to say, because we live in a culture that is permeated with naturalism, and we we just don't question some of the things they say and swallow hook, line, and sinker, and we even begin to engage in their language and talk about brains that think, and yet we come Sunday morning to a church, lift our hands, and worship a God who has no brain and thinks just fine, and yet we're made in his image, but we never let these two beliefs come together because, quite frankly, we don't take our theology that seriously. So not only have we failed to be able to respond to these strongholds, we haven't even been able to identify them, and hence their infiltration within the churches have gone unchecked. Okay, that's super interesting. Eric Hernandez is my guest. Now, if more than one of these strongholds has entered our culture or our churches, infiltrated our church, can you give us another example? Because that was super interesting what you just said. Uh, yeah, and l- let me know when you want to want me to go to responses. Um you know, with the time we have left, do you want me to go for more examples on that? Um, you can give responses because I guess looking at the clock, we don't have tons of time left. Yeah, time time flies when you're doing apologetics. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so <clears throat> let's briefly do some responses. So I, I had a, a young lady once I was talking to, and she says, well, well you can't say Christianity is true because there is no truth. And with one question is is how I'm how I'm going to aim to tear down the stronghold. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, well, I have one question for you. Is the statement that you just said, is that true? Because if you're telling me there is no truth, and yet you just said that as if you think it's true, well, then if there is no truth, then the very statement, there is no truth, cannot be true to begin with. So if you think there is no truth, I have to know if you think that's true. In other words, it's what we call in philosophy self-defeating. Now, you know, it, it can be funny when you get the answer, but how many people could have answered that before hearing my response? You know, but but we're called to be able to do this. What about scientism? Uh, briefly, so <clears throat> I, I I I've engaged in in discussions, even you know, public formal debates with atheists, and and you know, I I often get the question uh, or the the request to give them quote scientific evidence for God, and my response is, well, why do I want to do a silly thing like that? And here's how I unpack it: science is a wonderful tool for studying the physical world. But it is a tool that is limited to only studying the physical world. And God, if he exists, is by definition a non-physical entity. And so you cannot use something like science, which is limited to the physical, and demand that it be used to try and investigate the non-physical. Because it's what we call in philosophy a category fallacy. It's like asking, it's like you asking me, how much do, you, do I weigh? And I said, well, hand me that ruler and let's find out. It's simply the wrong tool for the assessment. And while science is a wonderful tool, again, and I think science can point to God, you're not going to find God under a microscope or test tube because he's not the kind of thing that science can study. So it's a category fallacy. Uh, What about uh, naturalism? Um, Well, going to what my professor said, in a nutshell for the sake of time, um, suffice it to say that 
your your relationship to your soul and your body and brain is like the relationship between a musician and his instrument. Um, if I want to play the note C on a piano, there are certain keys I have to press. So there's a correlation between keys and the notes that I can play. And if you damage these keys, then I won't be able to play the note. But does it follow from this that therefore the note C is inside the piano or or that the talent is inside the piano? Well, no. All that means is that there's a cause and effect relationship. But it doesn't mean that one is identical or reducible to the other. And and so, sure, if you mess with my brain or hit me over the head or give me some kind of narcotic, it's going to affect the way I think. But it doesn't mean there's no soul any more than you detuning my guitar while I'm playing music will affect the pitch and sound. But it doesn't follow that I am a guitar or that there is no music or the music is inside the guitar. All that follows is that there's a correlation and a cause and effect relation between the two. So... While there's many other ways to be able to respond to these kind of things, at the very least, the point is this. The Bible commands us to be ready to give an answer. Uh, spiritual warfare encompasses identifying and tearing down strongholds. And if we want to be effective in evangelism, if we want to be effective in spiritual warfare, even if we want to be effective in discipleship, then biblically speaking, you cannot do it without the discipline and task of apologetics, mm. according to Scripture. And when people take issue with that, I remind them that I didn't write the book. I just read it, and they can take it up with the author. <laughs> well, you convinced me, Eric. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a delight meeting you, and I love your passion. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Let's do this again. What do you say? Oh, I would love to. All right. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of your day. You Eric, too, my brother. Thank you. you. Eric Hernandez has been my guest uh, this half hour and that wraps up our show for the day so thanks to all the guys who did an extended version of Guy Talk and Eric Hernandez who was exceptionally bright and interesting that's it for today I look forward to spending time with you tomorrow Pastor Ray Comfort is going to be on the show Dr. Greg Hennington will continue our study in Daniel have a great night Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.